This is Art Matters. I'm Farron Gibson. This podcast is produced by Art UK, the online home of the UK's public art collections. Explore artworks and stories on artuk.org and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram on the handle artuk.org, spelling out the word dot. Many of us grew up enjoying the magic of Disney films. Whether you watch the classics like Cinderella and Lady and the Tramp, Disney Renaissance treasures like The Lion King and Beauty and the Beast, or any of the more recent Pixar blockbusters. They're often touching films that transport the viewer to another world through good storytelling and stunning visuals. For the first 43 years, the company was led largely by Walt Disney. These days, we think of Disney for his vision and entrepreneurial prowess, but he began as an illustrator. Disney attended the Art Institute of Kansas City as a young man. I don't know if he ever graduated. I don't think so. That's animation critic and historian Charles Solomon. He had shown an early talent for drawing, and there are things like old high school yearbooks that he had done artwork for. So the rumor that he couldn't draw uh, isn't true. However, he was never a great draftsman, and he quickly realized that he could hire people who could draw better than he could, who could help bring the ideas that he had created to the screen and give them form in a way that he could not. And so was he was his studio already well established at this time in order for him to be able to get people on board? Uh, no, he started doing this when he was still a very young man. He would have been about 20 or 21 when this started. And he gathered around himself a little group of artists, many of whom would all go on to do great things in animation. Uh, Byworks, who would design the physical appearance of Mickey Mouse and pretty much animate the early Mickey and Silly Symphony shorts by hand. Hugh Harmon and Rudy Ising, who would later found both Warner Brothers and MGM cartoon studios. And Frizz Freeling, who would become a director at Warner Brothers, and win, I think it's five Oscars altogether for his short cartoons. So there was this little nucleus of talent in Kansas City that Walt eventually brought to California when he came there to visit, to stay with his brother, his older brother, Roy, who was uh, out of the Navy and living in LA. And then they started the Disney Brothers Studio, which would become the Walt Disney Studio. I didn't know that his brother was involved originally. I'd never heard of Disney Brothers. Oh, yes. Well, throughout his uh, career, from that his early 20s on, uh, Roy Disney, Roy Oliver Disney, ran the studio's finances. And he, had been, he was Walt's older brother by several years. He'd always been very protective of his little brother. And it fell to Roy to find a way to finance all these grandiose projects uh, that Walt would come up with. In one often quoted uh, article he wrote, Walt joked that when the cost for Snow White went over a million dollars. Roy stopped complaining because he was petrified that he wasn't used to that many zeros on their bills. Yeah. Snow White was among the first feature-length, hand-animated films and was quite an undertaking. Hundreds of artists worked to produce the opus, which had technicolor, musical numbers, and synchronized sound. 
Disney invested in upscaling his animators, and much of the production costs went towards research and development. Fortunately, the popularity of Mickey Mouse merchandise provided the company with funds to hire teachers and set up art classes. I think by the early 30s, Walt realized that if he wanted better animation, he needed his artists to be better artists. And so he started with classes in life drawing. One of the uh, senior animators, Art Babbitt, had been having informal life drawing sessions at his house. And Walt moved them to the studio. He paid for the models. He paid for the materials. And he brought in Don Graham, who was the life drawing teacher at the Chouinard Art Institute, uh, arguably the top art, one of the top art schools in the United States at the time, certainly. But this program quickly expanded, and they began to study motion analysis and animal anatomy and animal movement and acting and filmmaking. And there are notes from these sessions where, for example, Don Graham would show a clip from a film and then talk to the artists about, okay, this actor is supposed to be drunk in this scene. How is he conveying that? Is he using his entire body? Is he just using his legs? Is he just gesturing? How convincing is he? By exaggerating these movements, how could we suggest this in animation more effectively? And for example, for Bambi, they had skunks and rabbits and owls and deer on the lot that the artist could sketch. So they had a greater understanding of, okay, how does an animal move? If I'm animating a deer walking, what's its step cycle? How does, how does its pattern of movement change when it begins to run or if it leaps? What positions does it assume in midair? And so by learning all this and how things really moved, they were able to exaggerate and caricature it and make you believe that the characters uh, were moving this way and in a way that was appropriate to their personalities. But the artists who worked at the Hyperion Studio, uh, so-called because it was on Hyperion Avenue in uh, the Silver Lake area of Los Angeles, all said it was like being in an enormous college or a Renaissance guild hall. Uh, for example, Bill Melendez, who would go on to direct uh, the Peanuts specials and features, started there as a young man right out of art school and said, you know, I was the equivalent of the, the lowest private in the ranks, but I could go up to Art Babbitt or Bill Teitla, some of the studio's top artists, and say, how did you do that thing we saw today in dailies? And he would take the time to show me. And so there was this enormous cross-pollination among the artists. And, okay, who shows a talent for animal movement? And how can that be developed further? And who seems to understand how uh, a human character moves? Or who can get the best acting or the most appeal out of Mickey? There are clips of artists sketching actors for films like Cinderella and Alice in Wonderland to attain better realism in the way that people and garments move. If you'd like to see this in action, I've included a video in the article for this episode on ArtUK.org. While animators took an almost scientific approach to accurately convey movement, they looked to more art historical resources to inspire the visuals. Well, for films like Snow White, and really the Disney style from Snow White through Lady and the Tramp, is largely derived from European storybook illustration, uh, which in turn is based in traditional fine academic drawing, that the forms are very rounded, they're solid, and they can move in three-dimensional space convincingly because 
they go back to that tradition of putting lines on paper in a way that suggest depth and anatomy and light and attitude and even personality. You start to get some changes in the later 50s. That's when, for example, Sleeping Beauty is largely designed to resemble the paintings of Van Eyck, pre-Raphaelite artists, and especially one lovely illuminated manuscript that's at the museum in Chantilly. That's the Très Richeur of Jean-Duc de Berry. And if you look at reproductions from that manuscript, you can see the shell pink and the sky blue of Aurora's gown come right out of that. So does that sort of yellowish uh, celadon green that's Maleficent signature color. So is the, the lapis lazuli blue in the banners. The figures are much more stylized. And they're also, even some of the compositions come from that manuscript and its influence. If you look at certain months in the Book of Hours, for example, you'll see the castles are clearly the ancestor of King Stephen's castle. And this was a difficult style to work in because it was less rounded, it was more flattened because it was based on something before the introduction of Italian uh, perspective drawing. But Walt told Eric Larson, one of the directors of the film, what I want out of this is a moving illustration and I don't care how long it takes. Ivan Earl, who styled Sleeping Beauty, cited Northern European painters amongst his influences and at least a couple members of the Bruegel family can be counted amongst them. Some of Earl's preliminary paintings for the Fairy's House are as dense and detailed as a painting by Peter Bruegel the Elder, while some of the lush backgrounds in the forest scenes remind me of Jan Bruegel the Elder. Some of the early stylistic elements of Sleeping Beauty would become more prominent in films like 101 Dalmatians. We see that the characters have a flattened, more angular style, and this also stems from fine art inspirations. That comes out of the studio that had actually become Disney's rival during the 50s, which was UPA, and where, again, Disney had looked to classic European academic drawing, to the, the Renaissance traditions. UPA was influenced by Picasso and Klee and Heinrich Klei and uh, Mogliani, Brock, and they were interested in introducing a more contemporary style of graphics to their designs. The characters are, again, more flattened, more stylized which meant they had to move in different ways. You can see that those same ideas today in films like Cartoon Saloon's The Secret of Kells and Song of the Sea, or in Gendy Tartakovsky's uh, Samurai Jack program. Then they push that even further in 101 Dalmatians because Milt Call, who was considered to be pretty much the top animator at the studio and who sort of did the final take on the designs for most of the characters, had gotten very, very interested in Picasso. And you can see that influence on those designs. Pongo is this perfect Picasso dog with these long, thin legs and larger paws and a kind of a blocky head that's really kind of different from what uh, Dalmatians looks like. You know, Dalmatian has a rather narrow, pointy head, and Pongo's is much blockier, but it's very much Picasso shapes and a kind of Picasso line that they're going after. And the work on Sleeping Beauty and the work that UPA was doing, although it was closing around that time, all suggested, okay, this is different. These are different approaches to design. 
And the animators were challenged to come up with ways of movement that were appropriate for that. I'm just, I'm interested because uh, with, with Sleeping Beauty, you can see how they would look to illuminated manuscripts. There's a direct connection there mm-hmm. in terms of these fairy tales might have been illustrated in this way. But then turning to something like Picasso or some of the other influences that we'll come to later, I wonder how were they draw how are they deciding what to draw and to be if inspiring their work well these uh artists at the studio had graduated from many of the top art schools in the country uh the united states and some of them like grim natwick who did some of the key animation of snow white and bill Titla, who animated grumpy and chernabog the black god and night on bald mountain had studied in europe So they were very much aware of the traditional fine arts, and they were also aware of what was happening in the art world. They went to museums, they went to galleries, they were buying art books. And uh, at that point, Milk Call was married to a woman who owned an art gallery. And I think she helped to foster uh, his interest in Picasso. But uh, an artist like Mark Davis, who animated Aurora, Maleficent, and Cruella de Vil in the films we're talking about, uh, after a day of drawing at Disney, he would come home, and if there was a circus or an animal show or a ballet on TV, he would sit and sketch that. If there wasn't, he would look at art books uh, and just spend his evening reading and studying and seeing what uh, other artists were up to. Uh, because these people didn't necessarily think of themselves just as animators, but as artists who were working in animation. Not all style references were drawn from Western art traditions. Tyrus Wong was a Chinese-born American artist who worked as a principal designer of Bambi and introduced stylistic elements from Chinese landscape paintings. Another example of this is Tyrus Wong, a Chinese-born artist who was the principal designer of Bambi. And he said, I, when I got out of art school, I needed a job. I had a wife to support. And he was working in the in-betweening pool, which was not a fun place to be at Disney. Uh, and he heard they were doing Bambi. So he started doing some little studies, turned them in, and they said, you know, come start working on Bambi and design. His influences are Chinese art, particularly the landscape paintings of the Song Dynasty, And when you look at the finished backgrounds of Bambi, you can clearly see uh, those influences. In the the Great Song landscapes, the foreground will be detailed. There's usually an area of mist that separates it from the background. And then in the far distance, there will be these great rugged mountain forms. And in many of the uh, Bambi backgrounds, as well as in Tyrus Wong's uh, little sketches, which animators and animation art collectors fight over when they come up for auction, (laughs) uh, which they rarely do, you can see that influence. There are areas in Bambi where uh, the middle ground will just be a wash of color with a few brush strokes suggesting leaves, and there'll be details in the foreground. But not only is this uh, aesthetically pleasing, that kind of less certain, much less detailed middle ground provides a place where the artist can put the characters and they can act without a lot of visual stuff to distract the audience's eye. It's basically creating a stage for them. 
in generally in Western landscapes, you're trying to record the way a specific site looks. Uh, you can go to Paris, you can go to the Isle of the Grand Jatte, and pretty much figure out where Seurat stood when he painted there. You can go to Rouen and figure out, okay, Monet must have been standing about here to get this angle on the uh, cathedral. In contrast, Chinese landscape painting is much more about how do you experience nature in your mind? It's about walking in through that forest and how, what do you feel? What do you sense? It's not about recording a specific place, but the feeling and the essence of nature. And that also comes through in Tyrus Wong's paintings. And you can see those same influences at work in Mulan, which the artist looked both to traditional Chinese art and to Tyrus Wong's paintings. For example, when Mulan strikes the match to light the stick of incense at her ancestor's monument, the smoke forms curls that reflect patterns you can find going back to Han Dynasty tomb tiles. And her horse in that film is clearly inspired by the great Tang Dynasty ceramic polychrome horses that you see in museums. The horse in Mulan also reminds me of the work of Yuan Dynasty painter Zhao Mengfu, who is regarded for his paintings of horses. As seen in several of Zhao's paintings, Mulan's horse has a sturdy build, and he even has the same black coat and white nose of a horse in Zhao's painting, Bathing Horses. One of the clearest and biggest fine art crossovers for Disney's comes in the form of a seven-minute surreal animation titled Destino, written by none other than Salvador Dali. Destino was a very curious project. When Salvador Dali came to Hollywood, he said he had met what he considered the two great surrealists there, who were the Marx Brothers and Walt Disney. And after the war, when Walt was experimenting with some different graphic styles, moving towards things they would later do. But if you look at some of the so-called package features, like Make My Music, they're trying different graphics a bit. And so when he had gone to South America during the war, he had bought the rights to a lot of music and songs. And he met Salvador Dali. And initially, that seems like the most improbable pairing you can imagine, you know, the creator of Melting Watches and this Midwestern American popular entertainer. But Walt's nephew, Roy uh, Edward Disney, Roy Oliver's son, said, well, one thing you have to remember is that both Walt and Dolly were showmen. And I think another thing that brought them together is Dolly was a fantastic draftsman. I mean, if you're going to draw an elephant on spider legs walking over a field of ant-encrusted telephones, <laughs> you damn well be, at, be able to render that believably mm -hmm. or the whole fantasy falls apart. You've got to have that kind of polished draftsmanship so that, oh, good Lord, those are spider legs on that elephant. And I think Walt respected that talent and that polish. After the war, Walt had some hard times financially. And they weren't able to complete Destino then. Dolly did some paintings for it. And working with one of the studio artists, uh, they had storyboarded the idea, but they were never able to complete it. And then decades later, Roy Edward Disney, when he was doing things like trying to do a second Fantasia and some other shorts, uh, realized, well, why don't we complete it? 
Destino was finally released in 2003 and includes the original 17-second test footage created at the start of the project. From this project, we can see that in the same way Disney animators were inspired by art history, fine artists have also taken an interest in the captivating visuals coming out of the Disney studio. In 1961, Roy Lichtenstein painted Look Mickey, a scene taken from a children's book showing Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck fishing. Donald has snagged his line on his own shirt and says to Mickey that he's, quote, hooked the big one, end quote. This is the first time Lichtenstein drew inspiration from popular cartoons and imitated the bende dots seen in printing processes. This would set the foundations for his signature style. Artists continue to be inspired by Disney imagery to this day, and that speaks to the cultural significance of the studio's oeuvre. For Andy Warhol, I think Mickey was as much uh, a celebrity as Liza Minnelli or Liz Taylor or Elvis or the other people uh, he created imagery of. He was certainly a Disney fan, and I think among all the, the mountains of stuff he collected, there was a lot of Disneyana. I think you can also see very clearly the influence of Disney in some of Keith Haring's drawings, uh, another New York artist. Um, and in recent years, there have been what I think they're referring to as kind of new neo-fantasists or surreal fantasists or something like that, who are younger artists. The Los Angeles artist Gary Baseman. Again, there's a, a, a Disney influence in his the large-eyed doll-like figures he draws. Or Camille Rose Garcia, a Latina artist, has done things based very much on Snow White, but her own interpretation of that character, done in pen and ink with the proportions in her face are different, the eyelashes are exaggerated, but it's very much her take on that cal on that character. And again, it would be I think it would be more surprising to think that there were there weren't artists looking to that for inspiration. It, it's as much a part of our culture. Uh, world culture, really, as, as anything. That's it for this episode on Disney. If you're sad it's over, I have good news. First, you can head over to the article for this episode on artuk.org and find GIFs, paintings, and videos related to this discussion. If that's not enough, episode 33 of Art Matters looks at fairy tales and art, so if you haven't heard that one yet, I definitely recommend queuing that up to listen to next. As always, thank you for listening. Be sure to rate and subscribe to this podcast, and then join us again next time.